Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Yuha Yupi podcast. My name is Yuha Yupi, know that is not a stage name, and in this podcast we talk about all things fitness related back to mobility and sometimes I go off topic. But without further ado, let's start. Uh, I haven't played my uh, theme song thing in a couple episodes, but I think that's okay. Um, Yesterday, I swore that I would make it a shorter podcast. I had some things written down, and I said I was going to make it like a 7 to 10 minute podcast, and then it turned out to be, I think, like 24 minutes, because uh, I just kind of got caught up in ranting and giving some explanations. So uh, today, I'm going to riff off of uh, something today that I saw. Um, there was a question I found online, and it said, What is mobility training in sport? So then that made me think, what does mobility training look like in sport? And I don't really have any notes on here. I wrote a very brief Instagram story about this where I gave one, two, three, four, five. I gave six steps, six kind of fundamental, more like theoretical steps that are followed in order to uh, to kind of showcase what mobility actually looks like in sport because some people view it as a warm-up tool. They don't look at it as what we talked about in the last podcast, if you missed it. Um, I forgot the exact wording. I said something to the effect of that mobility is a prerequisite for performance longevity. I actually really like that term. A lot of things that I say are either borrowed information or like stolen information. It's like I hear someone say it, I think it sounds cool, so I'll say it. Uh, but that, that that phrase is probably like the only phrase that I've come up with lately that I genuinely really like. Mobility is the prerequisite for performance longevity. Yeah, makes sense. So anyway, so I uh, just want to kind of go off the cuff here. What does mobility training look like in sport? So if I just kind of put my mind in the eyes of someone who doesn't currently do mobility work, all I'll actually give an example. I'll give a really specific example today. What mo- And so I'll give a very specific example today, and you can take the information and apply it potentially to other sport or activities if you do other sport, because the same theories do apply. Uh, so let's say there's a person who does hockey. They play hockey one to three times a week, but outside of that, they don't really exercise too much. Maybe they go to the gym every once in a while, but it's not consistent enough to have a routine. And basically the basis of most of their exercise comes from the sport. It doesn't come from their lifestyle because their job is relatively sedentary. Like they're not doing construction or something like that. Uh, And uh, they like to do typical recreational activities, TV, movies, couch, computer, technology, all that fun stuff. Uh, what would mobility look like for them? Um, so, oh no, I'm going to airdrop this. I want to airdrop this photo really quickly on my laptop because I want to reference it a few times. Turn Wi-Fi on. Turn wi- wait, wi- off? Oh, what? It uses Bluetooth. I thought that it uses Bluetooth, not that. Turn Wi-Fi to share. Oh, come on now. Don't. No people found. Eh, Hakuna Matata. No, whatever. No, whatever. No, I'm okay with that. 
if I can't use that, that's okay. So the first thing, though, is uh, what mobility training would look like in sport if, say, you're a hockey player. The first step, the first thing that it would actually look like is we would be doing exercises to improve the function of the joints that you're moving. So for a lot of hockey players, a lot of it is hip. I mean, it's full body, but, you know, there's a lot of requirements and uh, some of their ankle, but not like there aren't massive amounts of dorsiflexion, plantar flexion in the ankle because of the nature of the skate. Uh, there definitely is rotation of the knee, not necessarily rotation of the patella as much, but like there's definitely tibial internal and external rotation when you're when you're skating and your toe goes in or your toe goes out. A lot of that movement is going to come from your hip internally and externally rotating, but down the kinetic chain in your knee, there is going to be also rotation. Hopefully, we would like to be seeing rotation also in that tibia, internal external rotation. Uh, so for for you, we would kind of just go up the chain, go check every joint, and say, okay, well, with with uh, with hockey, uh, you know, how is your toe health? Um, if your toes yeah, so. Toes are important, but maybe not the most fundamental thing. Like, I'm sure that hockey players can get away with not having the ability to dorsiflex and plantar flex their toes to a great extent because of the nature of being in the skate. That may severely hinder them when it comes to doing dryland exercises, and it may also hinder their ability to get stronger in their lifts, which would make it harder for them to improve and become more explosive. so from a like a strength training standpoint, that stuff is important. But when it comes to like actually being on the ice, I don't think that you're using your big toe dorsiflexion or like your ankle dorsiflexion, plantar flexion to a great extent when you're playing hockey. Uh, it comes through more from like your knee, from that tibia, comes a lot in your hip, abduction, adduction, hip flexion, hip extension, all that fun stuff, and the relation between that hip joint. And that L5-S1 segmentation, uh, what kind of movement do you have? What capacity do you have in that spine? Um, With the spine, what we want to be able to do from a hockey standpoint is to be able to express as much active control as possible, not necessarily because we need to contort our spine into great lengths to receive a pass or to do a particular toe drag, or to be explosive when you jump off the bench onto onto the ice. Uh, But that kind of stuff can be really important when it comes to absorbing contact. So if you play in a contact league, the ability for your joint to express and create motion and to absorb it becomes really important if you're in a full contact sport or if you crash into the boards. If your lumbar spine area can barely handle pressure outside of your own body weight and then you accidentally slip or you crash into the boards, you're asking for an injury. So from the spine, we're looking at it from the instance of having a buffer zone for injury mitigation, for somewhat injury prevention, but more or less injury mitigation. Uh, so the shoulders, I mean, the more uh, like internal, external, uh, the more like internal rotation you have, it kind of allows you to be a little more 
agile and quick with some stick movements, but then a lot of that is going to be coming from that elbow and the wrist. So if you have really poor wrist extension, it may also limit your ability to uh, to be as quick as you can uh, in some of your more specific stick handling drills. So for all the hockey players, I think what so. There's no one size fits all. It's not about like hockey players have to do hips and these two other joints and that's it. If you work with someone who has their best intention, they're going to look at you from head to toe, each joint and assess what you need help with. But like in general, just kind of thinking off the cuff, I can understand why uh, like a large focus for kind of fundamental movement capacity improvement would be focused on hips, shoulders, and spine because although ankles and knees may be an issue although wrists and elbows may potentially be an issue um, if we can have fundamental movement capacity at the shoulder and hip and preferably at the spine that allows us to express the no, sorry that, that allows us to build a foundation in which we can work on expressing movement at the extremities without exhibiting compensations without exhibiting like joint coupling when we talk about compensations for the, within a joint, we often describe it as joint coupling. Uh, like, for example, if you're trying to internally rotate your shoulder, but you cannot dissociate your glenohumeral joint within your scapulothoracic joint, then there ends up being some compensatory movement. So, yeah, so the first step would be, you know, just really focusing on what are your problem areas. I think for a lot of people they could get a lot of benefit in just doing work that lies around like hips, shoulders, spine, maybe putting, you know, a little more emphasis on hips than maybe spine and then shoulders. Uh, there's no one size fits all those. So I think that would be, you know, a good identifier say, okay, before I do anything, I know that mobility for me as a, as a hockey player, I'm going to be doing a fundamental foundational kind of, I'm going to spend some time, working on, you know, some shoulders, hips, and spine. Um, unless you take a kin stretch class. If you take a kin stretch class, then that also takes you through, like, full body things. Like, there's, a, like, a, a lower body day, an upper body day, and it kind of points out some of the limitations that you have. But once again, it's just more conceptualizing. Uh, so step two would be taking those joints and helping them function greater as actual joints. And once again, as we talked about in the past, uh, what is the definition of a joint? The most basic definition is it's the space between two bones and the greater space. And, we'll, and when we talk about space within a joint, uh, we're talking about like in the spine, sometimes we're talking about millimeters in somewhere like the shoulder, we may be talking about centimeters, like some like, like centimeters are pretty significant. Like it doesn't even have to be like several inches. It can just be, you know, several centimeters, uh, like a couple inches, uh, so the greater that the the greater space so also when i say the greater space between two bones i don't mean like pockets of air i mean when all of the stuff in between the two bones is functioning well like there's adequate health in the connective tissue there's adequate health in the surrounding tendons ligaments blood vessels capsule fascia 90% of nerve endings, like when all of those things are 
being worked upon. Oh, sorry. So the reason why I say those things and uh, the reason why I talk about connective tissue being so important to improving joint space is all of those, all connective tissue can be uh, traced back to three precursor cells. And the main difference between a bone versus a tendon versus a ligament is uh, just the comp. Uh, just the composition of what each of those three are. Bone may be a higher percentage of one, and ligament may be a higher percentage of another. Uh, so if we can have the space around the two bones working well, that allows us for greater rotation, that allows us for more ability to express movement. And in, the, in something like the hip, the greater joint space that we have, the more ability that we have to uh, do a fundamental movement of the hip, which would be rotation, internal, external rotation. Uh, so things like that, uh, improving internal rotation of the hip passively and actively, improving external rotation of the hip actively and passively, which actually are the are the next step is to improve passive range of motion in a joint. Uh, if you already have passive range of motion because maybe you do a particular stretching regimen or maybe your lifestyle is such that you've simply maintained that range of motion over the years, then maybe passive range of motion is not going to be important for you. But if you have lived relatively sedentary, then you may have also lost some bendiness. You may have lost some passive range of motion. Uh, so step one would be increasing some passive range of motion, uh, just kind of teaching our body to be able to physically move in either new ranges of motion or ranges of motion that we haven't moved in in uh in quite some time and once we are able to express movement in those end ranges of motion and new ranges of motion new passive ranges of motion we want to teach our body to actively control it so that we end up using certain protocols so there are certain mobility protocols within the functional range systems that build towards that capacity uh oftentimes it starts within uh doing isometric lead progressions like for example, if you're trying to improve your internal rotation, then you may be trying to go from 5 degrees of internal rotation to 20 degrees of internal rotation. So you'll do things to progressively challenge that joint at varying angles with an isometric loading protocol. And you might do things to challenge yourself if your hip is in maximal internal rotation, you may challenge one side of the joint, like the inside of your leg, but in that same position, you may also do a slightly different protocol to challenge the outside leg while you're internally rotated. So we look at a big picture thing. Uh, for one example, that would be pales and rails, progressive angular isometric loading and regressive angular isometric loading, which if you don't know what that means, just means that... Uh, we bring ourselves into end ranges of rotation, and when we reach this new range of motion, we acknowledge that the joint, while it is in a new extended range of motion, on one side of the joint, the tissue is really long and stretched out. And on the other side of the joint, the tissue is really short. So we teach our body to be better in both short and long ranges of motion isometrically and then once we develop adequacy in active ranges of motion then we start to challenge ourselves not only isometrically but concentrically and eccentrically uh working against space working against uh our own body weight working against certain modalities uh and uh that also builds into the next point of then 
moving into increasing your control in end ranges of motion, because once you have some adequacy in holding an end range position, for example, uh, if you are trying to if you're trying to uh, say with skating, you're trying to be more explosive, then part of that is going to be you're pushing off on the inside of your leg, developing force through the inside of that hip. So becoming stronger in internal rotation. And the longer of a stride that you can produce force, sorry, the longer that you can stride, the more force you can produce. So it is within our best interest to train being able to produce force in the longest range of motion. Uh, so, so that's one thing that could definitely apply to any sport, but particularly with hockey, or at least right now, just in that example, like that's, that makes sense. Or like, even if you're a tennis player, um, one big thing with the serve is, uh, oftentimes, like, unless you're like very, very tall, like in, on the professional level, um, Actually, no, like even amateurs do that as well. Uh, sorry, even professionals and amateurs do this as well. When when you serve a tennis ball, there's a jump. So generally speaking, uh, there's a high level of importance in being able to produce force through your hip to jump into the air. So the more hip extension that we can have, the more that you'll be able to be explosive in a range of motion. If you, uh, well, what's an example? I was thinking, uh, yeah. Like even swimming when you're starting, when you're, when you're pushing off a block, if you can eventually increase your body's ability to produce force in 10 degrees more rotation, range of motion, then that allows you to put yourself in a position to push farther and that'll improve your performance. And you can use that same concept with almost any sport. Uh, once you have some level of proficiency in a newly acquired range of motion, we challenge yourself to uh, we challenge yourself to become very proficient in those end ranges of motion, not only isometrically in a held position, in a held contraction, but concentrically and eccentrically. Uh, and so that really just takes me to the final point in just a general summation. That is what leads to athletic performance, the culminating effort of everything, of going and improving joint function, so, uh, okay, quick summary is, you know, in order to increase your athletic performance with mobility, we'll first look to improve the function of the joint capsule. Second, we'll look to improve the amount of joint space that you have. Third, we look to increase passive range of motion. Fourth, we look to increase active range of motion. Fifth, we look to increase the control and end ranges of motion, uh, there are several, several subsidies, uh, sub points that could be said within each point, but that's kind of the hierarchical way of how you could perceive everything. Uh, so, oh, yeah, I feel good. So sometimes if you feel like you're trying to just start from the end, kind of, just go through this checklist and ask yourself, where do you think that you are in this list? Do you think that you have a healthy joint capsule? And if you don't know if you have a healthy joint capsule, how do you figure that out? Why well, you can take a look at each joint at roughly like a 90 degree range of motion and see how much range of motion you actually have in that. So like it with the hips, 
internal external rotation. In the shoulders, internal external rotation. With our scapula, see how much motion you have in all directions. With our patella, see how much motion do you have in all in all directions. For our tibia, for a knee, how much internal external rotation do you have? You know, for our ankle, how much inversion eversion do you have? Like just just kind of going through some of the more fundamental steps to see, okay, how much motion do I even have? Or is even expressing any move expressing any movement in this is that difficult? And then next, uh, joint space, how do you tell if you have a lot of joint space by how much active and passive range of motion you have? You can take a look at your hip in internal rotation and you can see how much passive range of motion do you have in internal rotation and then compare that number to how much active rotation you have in in that same movement. Uh, and then if you feel like you are not there, then you can take steps to building passive range of motion, internal rotation, or whatever motion that you are currently not as proficient in as you would like. Uh, and then uh, and if you are where you would like to be, though, then you can go and uh, challenge yourself in end ranges of motion. Uh, so you can look at different exercises like that, different protocols that look at challenging end ranges of motion. Like, and then finally, yeah, just uh, kind of evaluate everything. And if you kind of go through all of those steps, then that should be at least a really great foundation for you towards building and improving on athletic performance. So thank you for listening. Once again, my name is Yuha. Thank you for tuning in. If uh, if you like what you heard and you want to hear more mobility tips, more fitness tips, uh, please like, rate, review, subscribe, subscribe, uh, whatever platform you're listening on. And if you want to hear more of me, then uh, you can find me on a bunch of different platforms at U-H-A-J-U-P-P-I. And you can find me on basically all social media, TikTok, LinkedIn, Facebook, no, not Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, all, you know, Snapchat, all the ones on podcast, Apple podcast, Spotify, all of the different ones. So without further ado, my name is Yuha Yupi. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode.